Hello and welcome to another sermon from Boundless Vancouver. Uh, we're staying in the book of Mark, uh, and today is Mark 3, verse 12 to the end of the chapter. We have been following so far the movement of the King of Creation, the Creator Himself being revealed in the social interactions uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark. We've been looking in these stories at who Jesus is and how he's revealing himself as the King and as the Lord and as Savior. Today we encounter Jesus in relation to both the religious leaders of his day and his own family. These two kind of core social groups that remain in the world today. I wonder one of the things you could think about uh, throughout the sermon, if you want, is what have been the formative memories of your own family? The positive moments, the things that you just want to emulate for the rest of your life, and the more negative, painful uh, family memories that you may have. Today, we are looking at the part or what it means to be part of God's eternal family and the problem that prevents us from entering that family. I want to begin by sharing with you again from the opening of John's gospel. We're in Mark, but I want to give you this sense of what it means to be a part of God's family from reading from John's gospel, the prologue, starting at verse 12, chapter 1. But to all who did receive him, who received Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but were born of the very will of God. Today we have two problems that I want to address. We have the problem of religious idolatry. We have the problem of worshiping ourselves or the family or group we belong to. So let's look at the first problem. The first problem is our religious idolatry, or to use the words of John, to be born of the will of man. The religious leaders in this text galvanize together to come after Jesus because, as they say, he is possessed by Beelzebub, or, as, or and as well, he says, by the, they say, by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. The religious leaders assert that Jesus is casting out demons while also interfering with their religious systems. They are blind to the fact that in freeing people from demons, he is liberating them and making them whole. All they can see is that the thing they worship is being dismantled. The, the power of religious idolatry blinds the religious leaders of the day that they cannot see the good that Jesus is doing, the restoration that the king is accomplishing. Think back to Isaiah 44, which reads, starting at verse 18, he, he gives a picture of what it means to be idolatrous, to worship something other than God. And it says, They know not, nor do they discern. 
For he, the Lord, has shut their eyes, so that they cannot see, and their hearts, so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment. And at verse 20, it reads, He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. He cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? See, what religious idolatry does, and the reason it's a problem for us entering the family of God, is it gives us a well-constructed narrative of how the world works and our place of power in the world. It is not as obvious as the idols of the past where it was made of some kind of material, but rather it gives a way of understanding the world which still remains human-centric and removes God from his throne. There's one final danger and one final problem in religious idolatry. Not only behind idolatry is the place that Satan dwells, but also, and at the same time, those who trust in an idolatrous religion become themselves children of Satan. They become the ones actually working in league with Satan. So Jesus disrupts and frustrates the religious leaders when in John's gospel, they come to him claiming, we are children of Abraham and you, Jesus, are not. Jesus responds. They also claim that they are God's children and that God is their father. And Jesus responds, if God were your father, you would have loved Me, for I come from God, and I am here. I come not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot hear or bear to hear my words? You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what Jesus has identified as the religious idolatry of his day, not only is it the place where demons dwell, remember that the synagogue had a demon in it earlier in Mark, but it is also the place where the people who worship their idolatrous religion become children of Satan himself. That is a very stark way to view the world. And I would like to tell you that that's not true, that there's a whole bunch of gray. But Jesus confronts these religious leaders by saying, you are actually the children of your father, the devil. Yikes. So to confront this narrative of uh, opposition and religious idolatry and the accusation of the religious leaders that Jesus is himself a demon, Jesus calls the religious leaders to himself and says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot and will not stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. 
So first, there are two messages here. There are two warnings that Jesus is giving. First, the household of Satan is not a divided house. The enemy of the Christian and the enemy of the Christian life is Satan, and his house is not divided. If it were divided, it would become a mute force. Satan, if half of Satan's house wanted to restore human beings to their true image, and if half of them wanted to, to destroy human beings, then the power of Satan's house would be inert. There would be nothing to his house. But Jesus tells us, in fact, his house is strong. His units are united. The second part, though, is that in Jesus, a stronger man has come. It doesn't develop, Jesus doesn't develop this parable fully here. But what he's saying, only a strong man, a stronger man, can overthrow the strong man's house. The danger of religious idolatry and social idolatry, as I already said, is we could become the very children of Satan. But in Jesus, the stronger man has come to plunder us back and to give us an opportunity to come to him and enter his house. To plunder and to bind are strong words. They're violent, they're aggressive. And Jesus has come to bind and to plunder Satan's united house. It is not divided, but a stronger man has come. Let me read again from Isaiah, but this time chapter 49, verse 24 to 25. A prophecy which Jesus is now fulfilling in himself. Can prey be taken from the mighty, or captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrants be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, my people, and I will save your children. So our main, one of our main problems is that we trust in religious idolatry, is we trust in social idols. And in so doing, we create a space where Satan dwells and we become children of Satan. But Jesus has come as the stronger man. But we have a second problem. We all belong to families. We all belong to a unit with some level of social expectation and norms. And we belong to a culture of individual choice. So, we see in this narrative the, not only the galvanization of the religious leaders to confront Jesus as a servant of the evil one, but we also see the family of Jesus galvanizing and coming to where Jesus is because they think he's lost his mind. There are two parts to pay attention to uh, in our section of scripture. First, Mark chapter 3, verse 21, where it says, And when Jesus' family heard of another full house on account of Jesus, that another whole bunch of people came crowding in a house because Jesus was there, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. He has become a messianic pretender. He has taken on all this, all this force of expectation in the society, and, and that's not who he is. We ought to go rescue him because he's, he's got a messiah complex. He's lost his mind. And so then in verse 33, as Jesus is in this crowded house, his mothers and brothers arrive. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And somehow the, through the group, they, they passed on the message and it eventually reached Jesus because I can't imagine there was much moving in the house. And one of them says, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brother are outside. And I imagine the gospel writer Mark could have included, and Jesus, knowing that they had come to take him by force, thinking that he was crazy, said, who are my mothers and my brothers? When Jesus asks this question, he is first redefining the biological basis of family. People, you see, would have known who Jesus' parent or Jesus' mother and brothers were. Someone must have thought, well, you know, Mary's your mother. Then list off the names of his brothers. But Jesus is doing something here to make us reconsider who we truly belong to. See, in the ancient world, the family was such a strong, cohesive unit that determined your social expectations, your income, your employment, how you engaged in the world. In fact, it was embedded, as you might well know, in the Ten Commandments, to obey your father and mother, to understand their, their authority in your life. And yet Jesus still asks the question, who are my mothers and who are my brothers? And looking around at the crowd in this house, he explains to them, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does, and my sisters, for whoever does the will of God, they are my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. I don't know if this strikes you as it does me, but, but in this story, there are two moments where Jesus is with the people he desires to be with. In the beginning, it's his disciples. In this instance, it's with a whole crowd of people. And in both cases, he gives to them a great honor of both being with him, but being identified with his power and his authority and his family. And all they did, literally all they did was follow him up a mountain or cram into a house. And they are given the designation, my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. Because what's wrapped up in that is the obedience to God insofar as they were able to move themselves from one position to another. So Jesus reconstitutes the ancient idea of you belong to your family first and foremost. But we need a little bit more than that in our contemporary world. When what we have done is at any, at almost every point, try to undermine the role of the family and exalt the individual. Have you thought much about that? Living in an individualistic society, how much the individual is the determiner of all that matters. And this is best maybe articulated uh, in the context of talking about family groups or religious groups um, in the idea of a chosen family. Let me illustrate with a brief funny story. When I was a kid, uh, I'm a triplet, and I grew up with a brother and a sister who I love right now. But when I was a kid, I discovered that my sister, my brother and I actually discovered that my sister was quite different from him and I. You know, she valued stuff like homework and going to school and participating in social groups and cleaning her room. And she, she, was, she was strange. But my brother and I liked staying up late, running around neighborhoods, playing video games. 
not doing schoolwork, not going to school, snowboarding. Um, and our friend Jordan Logan loved all of those things, and we saw him often. So we made a choice. We chose to have a new triplet join us. We, we removed my sister and inserted my friend Jordan. And it was, we were the triplets. It wasn't fair to my sister, and it wasn't the loving thing to do, but we could choose. Now, there's a, a deeper need present in our culture today in chosen family. Because often chosen family emerges from a place where our biological families, specifically our parents, but not only our parents, have failed to accept us as we are. The idea of chosen family today has a few core components. One, I am who I am. That is, my identity is, round, is defined by how I identify myself. Therefore, love is acceptance. And so, I must therefore be loved for who I am. And that means I must be accepted as I am. The idea of chosen family means I get to decide who loves me and how I'm loved. A few more aspects, therefore, of chosen family are it's caring, it's non-judgmental because it must accept me as I am, it's emotionally available in the ways I need it to be, and there's some sense of similarity or at least acceptance. I found this quote that I think epitomizes it well. It says, if the family you came from sucked, make up a new one. Look at all the millions of people, billions of people that there are to choose from. If, you're a fam if the family you're in hurts you, Get on a bus, like now. But, as important as it may be to find a place where you can receive love, we cannot receive the love we need most if we become the basis and the fundamental source of how we're to be loved. See, the chief lie, I think, of our age that the Bible even confronts here and that Jesus confronts is that we do not determine fundamentally who we are. And we do not, therefore, determine fundamentally um, how we're to be loved. We cannot live by our own standard imposed on everyone around us. We will miss something of the otherness of love. And so Jesus makes the very clear point again in saying, those who do the will of God are my mothers, my brothers, and my sisters. Can you imagine for a minute what it would be like to go to the living God of all creation, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the stronger man, and go to him and say, listen, this is who I am, God. And this is how I require you to love me. And he says, your first step is obedience. And that's what I want to turn to now. Why does Jesus say, if you obey God, you are my mother, my brother, and my sister? I want to help us understand very briefly and as quickly as I can 
the importance of obedience. Now, I know that we live in a culture and a time that rightly, in some respects, rejects an authority to be obeyed. We don't like the word obedience. There's too much baggage there for us. There's too much um, imposition of control and a lack of intimacy. So we would rather trust a group that we understand well enough and can somewhat control, or we'd rather just trust ourselves and force everyone else to fit into that mold. But I think what obedience is, is a manifestation of our trust. And so I think that obedience to God is the manifestation in our trust, in his power and in his love. And this breaks us from a dependency on ourself because we depend on Jesus. It breaks us from a blind, idolatrous dependence on our group, on our social group or our religious group because we depend on Jesus. I mentioned it already, but notice the inclusiveness of Jesus to welcome those who obeyed him in the most simplest way possible. All they did was move from a point not on the mountain, in the case of the disciples, to being on the mountain with him. All the people in the house did was move from a point of being outside of the house into the house. So the apostles on the mountain respond to Jesus by following him up. Nothing spectacular. Other people funnel into a house, the crowd. And Jesus gathers up the fragmented human beings who were created in his image, in the image of the Father. And they welcome, and he welcomes them into a relationship with himself. So trust in Jesus issues itself in obedience to the Father. Trusting Jesus is obedience to the Father. Even if it's entering a house, Jesus gives to us, to you and me, a proper source to live from. And we have to understand as Christians that we have to let go a commitment to um, imposing our self-will on God. And we have to let go the dependence on a social group. Remember how we started out this sermon from John chapter 1. But to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in the name of Christ, he himself gave the right to become children of God because they were not born of the will of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of the will of God the Father. And in being born of that will, they trust him. We today are given the gift through Jesus to trust him with our life. Yes, God is a king. Not a, not a hugely popular word in a democratic society. But he is king and a loving father. So may God bless us in understanding that he has called us to be obedient to him. And in being obedient to him, we receive the full love of God's family. 
So we are united with one another through God's Holy Spirit and his spirit of love for each of us. Let me just end uh, with a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, or writes, As a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, as Jesus' family suspected, or on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself, as the scribes and religious leaders suspected. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So today, as you listen to this, remember that God has not left open an option to think him crazy or to think him a normal human being. We either have to think he's crazy, the devil himself, or who he said he is. Would we trust the revelation of Jesus? And in so doing, through that simple act of trust, enter God's family and therefore uh, be obedient children. Bless you.